0: Valentine's Day is upon us, fellas. Make sure you're ready for whenever the night may take you. Our friends at Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below the waist grooming, are here to tell you that you need to use the best tools for the job so you can be ready for anything on that special day. Two million men are already trusting Manscaped products to groom. Make sure you're one of them. Your girl can't think of what to get you this year? Tell her to get the gift that's for you and for her. The best way to get started is with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0, full of the best products to keep you looking, smelling, and feeling nice. The Perfect Package 3.0 is led by their revolutionary, third-generation lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, which has advanced skin-safe technology and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. It's also waterproof, which prevents a mess on the bathroom floor and in the sink, especially when it's time for Cupid to shoot his arrow. And let's be real. We've smelled the worst down there before. That's why I am thankful for their Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver. These products keep our boys from sweating, smelling, and sticking. And these products smell good. Their manly scent is attractive and will help you set the mood, if you know what I mean. The Perfect Package 3.0 will also come with a pair of manscaped boxers that'll keep your junk feeling fresh all day. It's time to upgrade those overused, pair of boxers to Manscaped high-performance anti-chafing boxers. Easily the comfiest boxers I've ever had. And complete your grooming game with the new refined cologne signature scent by Manscaped. With the same signature scent that is in all Manscaped formulas, this cologne is a perfect complement to the collection. This is the perfect package for your perfect package. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code UNFILTERED20 at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code UNFILTERED20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code UNFILTERED20. Happy Valentine's Day from Manscaped. And welcome to Habs Unfiltered. I'm your host, Blaine Pudvay. I'm joined by my co-host, Treg Wilson. How you doing? And we are joined by a special guest, Terry Ryan. Thanks for coming on, Terry.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. And once again, I appreciate the invite, as always. Just took me a little bit to get around to it. I'm so busy.
0: Well, we understand how busy it is up in Newfoundland right now with you guys being, uh, getting shut down because of COVID. So we totally get it.
1: Got my daughter here with me. We've been relatively—I won't say unscathed—when all this started, being roughly a year ago. We we took all the precautions as everywhere else, but but there was really no COVID. We had one breakout at a funeral home last May, and that was forty-four cases, and you know everybody stayed in and pretty much took care of it. Outside of the odd, we have we have uh, transitional workers, but you know. We had a few people get it while say working on the rigs in Alberta, but they'd come back and be in isolation. So we really didn't have anything out in the open. I'm not sure what happened a few days ago, but a couple of clusters broke out, and now they just shut down everything. Um, I work part-time at a bar, TJ's, that's shut down, my daughter's school, pretty much everything. So I guess this is how long it took, but um, the reality of COVID, if, if you can believe it, if you can believe it, I mean, outside of seeing it on TV hasn't really hit here like it has literally today today it all, we found 100 new cases i think so it's blown up man
0: well i'm glad it, i'm not glad it happened but i'm glad that you guys have been pretty well protected up on the rock um Treg and i are both sailors so we're, we're kind of we have an affinity for uh for st john's in newfoundland so we would hate to see anything bad happen up there to such great people so george
2: george street's like our second home when we go there so <laughs>
1: love it <laughs> Love it, guys. I'm down there too, and I'm 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 helping run my buddy's place, TJ's Pub, and it's been it's been a breath of fresh air and all this, right? Because like, you know, you know what's happening. You see what's happening on TV. You hear, hear stories, people living away, but there really was no reason to be threatened. You know, we had again, it's half capacity. Everybody wears a mask. I'm, I'm certainly not saying we're not taking it we're taking it lightly, but but you know, yeah, George Street's a, a laugh. We had to, we had no George Street Festival this year. And it's not just, you know, I say that on my podcast sometimes and I get shit. People are like, you know, incidents of your being just about a beer. I'm like, no, it's it's the, it's the, you know, like anywhere. I'm not, I'm not saying we're unique to it, but George street and George street festival is time that everybody comes together. and You know, the fishermen, the hockey players, the musicians, the tourists, it's a laugh. And that's. What it's not so much when, when we explain here in Newfoundland what we miss, it all involves drinking. So it sounds like we all miss drinking, but I mean, there's alcohol in houses. We we, we uh, miss, you know, the the whole, I guess it's the uh, Irish, Scottish, English in you know, us. You know, the the whole pub atmosphere, being hanging out, listening to live music, and telling stories for the most part.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I've been up to uh, George Street for the festival a few times and I've done the Calgary Stampede. I've done festivals around the world and George Street blows everything out of the water. Okay. You got music in the streets, music in the in the restaurants and the pubs and everyone's dancing and singing and laughing with each other and complete strangers. It's yeah, just so it's much fun.
1: Of... Every year that's been a big part of my life that uh, because, because of that atmosphere, and because I mean, in Canada, but especially in Newfoundland, you know, you want to visit in the summer. So since I've been living away, I'm, I'm 43, 44 now, uh, 30 years ago, 14, that's when I That's when I moved. And since then, every single year, I have, you know, people choose that time to come. So George Street Festival for me is also a real reunion with people I haven't seen in a long time. I'm, I'm really fortunate growing up. I thought Newfoundland was so far off the beaten path. And no one would ever come. And, you know, I went away to Cornell and then Tri-Cities and Montreal thinking, you know, none of these guys are ever going to know where I'm from. But it's great because post, you know, pro hockey and all that. And I still travel a lot. But it, it's somewhere now people like to come. And, and that's one of the reasons is George Street Festival. So, you know, I miss it.
2: Segwaying into that, I have a question. <laughs> How does a, 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 a small town Newfoundland boy end up playing West Coast hockey? for his uh, junior career? Like, how did I, that uh, end up?
1: Well, there wasn't much scouting here at the time. And I was doing really well, though. John Slaney's is four or five years older than me. He scored the big goal for Canada there in the junior in Saskatoon, the World Juniors, arguably the biggest goal at the World Juniors ever. It's certainly in the top 10. Um, but, I mean, he, he he won this. I remember John was big in bantam here. We all knew it, and I remember like who he was. But... They won to get to go to Toronto, I think, to play the SO Cup, it was at the time, maybe the Air Canada Cup, something like that. And that's where he got scouted. Point is, no one was coming here. So I came a few years after him and, you know, I, I ripped it up. We we won the Provincials 16 to nothing. I think I had 80. It was comical. It was laughable. And we went to the Quebec Wee Tournament. And that's a huge, one of the biggest minor hockey tournaments in the world, if not the biggest. At the time, it was definitely the biggest. Um, and we did all right, but we, we, I, I was scoring a lot. All of a sudden, I was on a national, an international stage. I never really expected, I, I, I was here doing that. There was a, we had a bit of an inferiority, inferiority complex here in Newfoundland at the time that I was coming of age. No one, it, we just, you know, we, we, right now, even like things like Republic of Doyle blew the roof off, you know, the film industry. And then Great Big Sea came along with music and the St. John's Maple Leafs and, and John Slaney and all that. But none of that had happened. Like when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, it was until, yeah, I was 14. So, like, all that was just starting. I never thought I could get 100 goals here. <laughs> Actually, I did. I think I had, like, 400 goals. But I never thought I'd, there was ever a chance. Everybody in the mainland is going to crush Newfoundland. You know, like I've often said, I played soccer, ball hockey, baseball, hockey in a national level before I was 14 years old. We would win here. We would go. And we always played the host first game. So the host would beat us seven to one. Everybody got a free hot dog and everybody's happy. And the Newfoundlanders gave it a good effort, you know, and it's just, that's, that's the way I thought of it. So in my mind, every single player on like a Toronto team would be better than me. So but we went there and that started, then I realized, okay, like I'm scoring against the Toronto Red and Mount Pearl is tying them five to five. Terry had five. So there was that. Now there was a guy there with the Vancouver super series and he wanted me to play on this team in Vancouver. And that was for Bantams at the time I was Peewee. He wanted me to go out, um, at least this particular player, went, it was a, actually a tournament for Peewee through Midget, but these, this guy wanted me to go play with the Bantam team in Vancouver. So I came home and told my father that. And my dad knowing, you know, my dad played pro hockey too, so he he was no slouch. He knew about that world and he knew that I had to go soon. I didn't really take him seriously when he used to say that. But um, so what my dad said, said, he said, rather than you go play with them, we'll make a team Newfoundland. Uh, and because, you know, all these guys need to be scattered. There was no A system here then. A really weak one went to like two tournaments a year. It was only a midget. So um, that was it. So we got a team together. And, you know, a long, long, long story short, we opened up against Vancouver like you would, right? Play the host. Mm-hmm. Sun God Arena, first game, 6-6. Six, six. And they had like, some real good players, and then with the team BC we played, we lost six five, and then we lost six five Northern Alberta, Southern Alberta, same score. Ryan Smith, we're talking Chris Dingman, Brad Lukowicz, Damon Lankow, Ray Schultz, like I can, Jason Penolan, Michael Clark, I can go down, like all these guys were at the tournament, so we're doing all right. I don't, and I'm I'm playing a year above me. I'm, I'm a seventy seven. I'm playing with the seventy sixes, so I get prom, most promising player of the tournament. We never won a game, but we lost three by a goal. And we tied two. the last game, we lost 10 to one to Manitoba and we put it up first game. I swear to you, different era, but we we said the scouts are here and you know, they loved it then. It was Western league in the nineties. And we, we only went out there with 12 players and we had a line brawl first shift. They kicked our ass, but we figured, we figured we did our job, which we did now dad was right. I was the most big highest profile out of that, but Kurt Walsh also played on our team, never would have gone anywhere. He went to Ontario at a successful four-year run. I believe won a CIS championship and and he was also drafted third round to Buffalo. We had Dave Penny played junior A from that. Oh God. We had Mike Pittman played on Jeff O'Neill's line and junior Guelph works still works in Guelph, married a girl there. Um, I'm forgetting. And obviously Cleary and Harold Druken. Right. Um, So there was, none of that was known so all of a sudden this team goes comes back tri-city were at this tournament and they 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 did what they could they they found my dad a job he was a a teacher they found him a job subbing for the year and they helped to coach like minor hockey and stuff and uh, they had a place to go Quinnell, and they said if i went out there they'd draft me i got it in writing but whatever legalities like that you couldn't get all of it in writing there you know that they were going to draft me, but they said they would and they gave dad the job and they picked me third overall in the Western league draft. I knew nothing about it. And when I went out there, I thought I was going to play Matt. I played Wee here the next season. Not only all that happened. I thought I was going to BC. I didn't know where they sent me to Cornell up by Prince George. I had a great time, but middle of nowhere, small town and love it. But I'm just saying it wasn't Vancouver. Um, and I, I did, I played junior like I, I couldn't believe it. And not only that it's, I'm telling you the story um, of how I ended up there, but two things I'll add, and these aren't bragging. I'm I'm not saying this bragging. Number one, I can't believe that going eighth overall is one thing. You know, what I take from hockey is the championships I won. But if you ever ask me, uh, you know, on a personal level, what's my biggest, I I don't know, going eighth overall, yes, but, that's obvious. Leading my junior team in scoring and having 220 penalty minutes as a 14-year-old, a first-year bantam, I've never hit before. I, you know, that to me, I looking back, I cannot, I just can't see. Lots of people go eighth overall. I just can't see as the game changed. I just can't see anybody doing that anymore. I, not that I'm, I'm swear to you. I'm not saying this like I'm. I'm better than Wayne Gretzky, or it. It didn't really happen that way. It was an era. It was going into this crazy tough era. I was a 14 year old allowed to wear no visor uh, or sorry, no cage. I had a visor and I was allowed to drop my gloves and fight like 15 times. And, you know, it went right into the Western league and it was a crazy era. I could ride that wave. And I did. Um, and I'm glad I did, but I, I, I just can't see, you know, 14, 14 got younger after that, right? Like a 14 year old. Now I wouldn't even think of it. If, if I, I don't know, I, my daughter's there comparison because there's hitting at the time um, but you know I I had a stepson I raised my buddy BJ Young's son Tyson he played junior B out out in uh, Alberta for the St. Paul Canadians for a couple of years I would never have thought about you know him it wouldn't even be possible but for anybody his age to go out there and start fighting and playing and, and you know it was one thing to go high but to lead my team not saying but, by the way that Tyson isn't a great hockey player in his own right. I just mean his age group of all of them. He played AAA here. I watched all of them coming up. It's not purely a talent thing. It's just they all seemed so young to me at 14, you know, like, and I was a fairly big 14-year-old. But looking back, like, wow, you know, that that was amazing. I, I, you know, I, I can't believe I, I found my way in and around and and, and you know, navigated that situation because, you know, from I'd never – and I'm not just saying on the ice here. I'd never really drank. I mean, you know, I remember having a couple of beers in my buddy's parents' basement thinking we were badass, but, you know, I never went to a party like this with women there. I'd never been laid before. First game, the first game, actually I got shit kicked in a fight. The second game, and there is a level of loony to me. I got to say, like, I, I, I went right at their bench. I fought their toughest player. I put hot sauce on my hands and chipped up my helmet. So, he would hurt his hands when he came at me, and I went on, and I, I just in my mind I was gonna, I was gonna do it. It, it would take a lot. I would have break, broken the law, which technically I guess I did. I mean, I rubbed hot sauce all over his hands, kicked the shit out of them, out of him. And after the game, lost my virginity. Everything was coming a mile a minute. I was like, I want to do this now. I want to be accepted. I want to play. I want to score. I think in the end, that's why that helped me as a player. That that no nonsense, give it to me, I want it now attitude. It hurt me with the Montreal Canadiens because I just didn't give it time. I do think you give a, a first round or hundred games to fail. I've always said it. And I don't understand how there was times that I didn't get called up and play more, but it wasn't the end of the world. I do think that if I'd stuck around, I'm a good enough player that I could at least, you know, show them that I could have played some more games, but I, I, I have a, well, I'm a catch 22. What got me there. When it came to that, you know, I should have gone back to Montreal camp and I absolutely love my time there. And I know that question's probably coming, but i I loved Montreal and everything. I had a little problem sheltering. <laughs> I wanted to trade and I acted a bit fast, but anyway, i I just answered like ten questions that you didn't ask in one. Well, so. <laughs> actually, one
0: of my questions was going to be about uh, the story behind any possible trade. I, kn- I know that you've you've hinted at it a bunch of different places. I haven't heard the full story. So it was kind of, I was pretty curious to find out.
1: Well, guys started, I don't remember exactly when it started to happen, but I, I didn't like Michelle Tarian. I was there at 19, right? Like I just had a concussion, but I, they were really treating that with kid gloves and that was a good thing. But like, I remember Mario Chomley, I mean, he gave me his number, you know what I mean? Like, so it wasn't always bad with Montreal. I made it when I was 19. I only played three games. I get sent back at the deadline, but they wanted me to practice with the team. I'm sure that year I would have gone to the American Hockey League if they could have done it. But as a 19-year-old, you weren't allowed. That rule is always there's, – there's always a little bit of vagueness and foggy area around that rule. But as I understand it, I could not have been sent down to the American League. So I remember Mario Tremblay saying to me, he said, you know, do you want to play – do you want to stay here? I said, I, you're going to go back? We got nothing much left to prove other than winning. And he said, We can trade you, we can get you sent back at the deadline. He said, Why do you need to be in Tri City right now? You're going to get more than 50 goals. He said this. Uh, he said, You know, you're, you're definitely going to get in fights. He goes, I'd rather you up here and practice with these guys. And then shortly after Shane Corson got traded to our team, they put me with Darcy Tucker. So there was clearly a plan, right? Like it's not like there was no plan. But then when Mario left, and at the very beginning, Serge Savard and, and Jacques Demers drafted me, right? So they really loved me. Like, I, I only recall being elated whenever I talked to them. And Mr. Demers called me like right off the bat. But I mean, he got fired right away. So mm-hmm. then Trombley came in and he, he liked me, but then he got fired. Like this all happened before like I really became 20. You know, I just got drafted. And a whole lot of tumultuous situation with the Patrick Wadd trade and everything. That happened. You know, so I I was kind of just caught up in this boat that was already sailing along. So um, the next year though, right? So I went back to Red Deer and I geez, a great in in, I I I think I'm still in the top ten playoff scorers ever in a year. I had 18 goals and we didn't even make the final. I led I led I remember leading the WHL in playoff goals, 18 and 16 games, and we were we were knocked out after three rounds. And one of those rounds was a sweep so do the math, so then, then I, and in the regular season, in 16 games, I had 35 points, so I had a goal a game or something, 30-odd games, 30-odd goals, so I was pumped, you know, and I didn't get in one fight in Red Deer, they were very adamant, like, you know, I wanted to go back and, and prove that you can score, and I could, I mean, that was the first thing that I ever wanted to do, I have a temper, and at the time was, the time, if you could fight, it was rewarded, and I could, it wasn't always temper, in fact, less than half the time, but, less than a quarter of the time Uh, but um you know I I I just remember just being so happy and being a Montreal Canadian and you know like a year or two of that and then I went to Fredericton and I met Michelle Terry and I I didn't like him I could tell you some stories but just overall let's just finish this one first I, I I didn't like the man at all and a lot of people shared my opinion it was a I I'm I'm happy by nature I'm a jubilant Anybody in junior, I score a goal. I, you might get me on that one. If, if, if I was ever unsportsmanlike or you said I had an attitude problem, it was like score, celebrating after goals. I was elated. Each goal I scored in the Western League, I, it was like the NHL to me. Like, I used to watch major junior games on TV. Eric Lindros was, like, big when I was 12, 13, and I just never thought I'd be playing it. So, and Tri-City is this desert place, and they, they had a lot of fans. They wouldn't always sell out, but close to, and they'd sell out a lot. And, you know, I was one of their main players, and I would – I just was elated to be a hockey player. I never ran into any adversity. If I did, I just told you about it. If it was off the ice, I need to get laid. I need to fit in. What do I got to do? What do I have to do to fit on this team? Fight that guy? I can't beat him. I'll put hot sauce on my... I would do it. If I needed to be in Tri-City and I thought my name should be out there more, I'd drive down to the weather station and ask him, can I do the weather? Come to see a Tri-City Americans game. That was me. I was just in your face. I never ran into much adversity I couldn't speak or I couldn't take. When I met Michelle Tyrion. First time I got rubbed the wrong way for three weeks and I didn't want to be seen as this first round pick that's like, you know, complaining, but I couldn't understand him. He called me in his office once for a meeting and he just lit up a cigarette and and smoked it and, and didn't say anything. He just lit up a cigarette he looked, stares at me and I'm waiting for him to say something. And a minute later, I realized this is my mind game, so I'm not going to say anything. And my attitude was go fuck yourself. My attitude wasn't like, you're going to get the most out of me. My attitude was when I leave this office, I'm the fuck out of here and I'm never coming back again. I didn't know what this was. A mind game for no reason. I i could see if I fucked up. This was a mind game for no reason. And then I find out that this is part of his shtick. I want no part of it. That's not what I want. And I'm willing to get the hell out of Montreal if I got to. It's my favorite team since I'm a kid. So I mean... Since I'm born, it's my dad's favorite team. My first pitcher is in a Montreal shirt with Santa. Um, so, but I'm willing, and I'm telling you, that was one interview that through, uh, this guy just acted like a jackass, and his 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 method. And again, not all his fault. Mike Keenan was big at the time. You know, I hear Mike Babcock. You know, because I. I Babcock coached against me in junior, but you know, you're here now looking back. I, I, I don't really know. I, I, I yet to be, I don't think Mike Babcock was pulling what Michelle Tyrion was point being though. It was, it was the time to be an authority, like a, a almost a like almost a dictator kind of a coach, right? Not everybody was like that, but if it was big, this was the time it was big and Michelle Tyrion decided to go that route. Anyway, there was more and more stories, but you know, but I, uh, and I can tell him after this if you want. But anyway, that's why I want it out. And then all of a sudden, guys start getting traded that I'm looking around and I'm playing with. I'm not saying I'm better than Darcy Tucker. No way. That's an insult to Darcy Tucker. But I know I played junior against him. And if he can be a star once he gets traded to Tampa, I think I can play on the fourth line somewhere for a chance for 30 games. You know, like, and, um, you know, I, oh, oh, God. Not that I'm as good as these players, but all these players while I'm there started to get a chance when they got traded. Craig Conroy... Valerie Bure, Jim Campbell, who no one expected anything from. He goes to St. Louis and was like up for rookie of the year or something. Craig Conroy is immediately one of the best two-way players in the league. Um, Brad Brown, eventually, who I'm coming on my podcast tomorrow. He's one of my best buddies. He was down there the whole time with me and Fredericton. The whole time. Couldn't get games. He got called up the last game he played to get a ship with one second left to fight Rob Ray. We were, we were both in the same situation. Brownie gets traded 390 games straight in the NHL till he retires. I I was down there going, what the hell? Matt Higgins, Aaron Asham, everybody got traded. Actually, those two came right after me, but still it was part of, you know, and I'm going, what is this? I'm down here. I put in my time. And I went to Mr. Hull. I said, you know, I did everything you wanted me to do. I thought, Going into my 20 years, seeing that I was here when I was 19, I would be up. I think they either didn't make one of those years they didn't make the playoffs. I don't know which one it was. And, and they weren't, it's not like they made the Stanley Cup final the year before. The years I was was there were these anomaly years. The year before I got there, I think they won the cup and then they didn't make the playoffs or something. It was the middle of all that too. And like I'm like, you know, there's a whole it seemed like within the organization they didn't know what they were doing. So I, I just I I I just wanted out and 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 Mr. Ho, I I said to him, I'm like, you know, I went down, I was rookie of the year, my first year in Fredericton. You know, I didn't even think I'd go down there. I was rookie of the year. I had 21 goals, 34 fights. You know how many goon punches I've taken for you guys? I'm just like, please get me out of here. Didn't happen. So then the next year I go back with him again. Our relationship completely deteriorates. But I play another 50 or 55 games. I think I had 45 points. I ended up with more points. Now I'm like, get me out. I just want out. I just want out of here. And I was asking pretty much every day. And I, I, I you know, I, I, the worst is that at the time, my relationship with, and, you know, I'd get called up and Alan Vigneault, I don't know what he thought of me, but I mean, I, I, I'd go out and get in, for the most part, one shift and I'd fight. But I mean, I don't, he's looking at this guy in the minors that's got 34 fights, I guess, in one year. And I was doing okay. A lot of it was, you know, junior guys, I dropped my gloves, but I was a middleweight, you know, I was a tough middleweight that, that could surprise, just like I was in pro. I just wasn't doing it that much. And I wasn't fighting all the goons. Yes. There's stories about me. I fought Wade Belak because I don't give a shit, but, but like he wasn't on the menu every night in junior. in when I got into pro that, that line was foggy in some games, I remember getting called up one of my last games, going to the rink, in the paper, open it up, kid. Right, first round pick, excited to be playing, and it said in the news and news and notes part of the Gazette, it said um, Terry Ryan's being called up today from Fredericton, and it only mentioned my penalty minutes, and it said a possible opponent for Christoph Oliwa tonight, and I'm like, because he's back from injury or whatever, I'm like, oh Jesus, like this is it, this is it, this is what I'm here for, and then Oliwa got scratched, so so did I, and I was going, wow. So it's a tough, weird position to be in because I was obviously being rewarded for my fighting. Now I don't mind doing it, but now I'm thinking to myself on top of, am I going to make a career out of being an NHL heavyweight when I'm looking around going, I'm lucky to the tie These are funny stories, but I'm lucky that him or Bob Probert hasn't knocked me silly so far. Right. So um, I'm always willing to do it, but I wanted to play. And again, it's not like my stats were terrible. It's not like I went down there and all of a sudden I couldn't score a lot of people say first round bust or whatever, or, you know, about certain players, but I just, it used to burn me. Cause I'm like, I don't know, just put me on the ice somewhere else. I know I'm not a great skater, but everybody said that everywhere I went and I keep surprising them. You guys pick me. Anyway, I said that to Mr. Hua once and he said, no, I didn't pick you. I wouldn't have picked you. He didn't say it in a malicious way. Either. He's just, I was asking, you know, please get me out of here again. And he was just like, I, I wouldn't have picked you. I don't think you're a good enough skater. And he said, you know, you're here, you're an asset. Yeah, he, he offered me the, the you know, the 10% raise, whatever it was. I, but he told me I would be, like, he offered me the qualifying deal. He just told me that I would be in Quebec and I would be one of their call-ups. And I'd be captain in Quebec City. That was their farm team for one or two years, the Citadels. So I, I just, I, I said, no, this was before camp started. So I said, no, I don't want that. Can you please trade me like you traded everybody else? And He didn't. I didn't know. In November, I didn't know what to do. I started calling teams, so I went to Long Beach. I played one game. They traded me to Utah, and this in the IHL. And then eight games into my stint in Utah, which I was being used as a tough guy. Uh, St. John's Maple Leafs phone. It's my hometown. They signed me as a free agent on loan from Montreal. I thought I was getting traded. I know that there was a deal on the table. Bill Waters told me that. He's got no reason to lie. Montreal didn't take it. We both were stubborn. In the end, I should have gone back to camp uh, like Aaron Asherman, those guys. And, you know, eventually I would have just been a, you know, not, the team probably would have tried to trade for me. It wouldn't have all been on Montreal's shoulders. And in the end, I think they were stubborn. They didn't get anything out of a first round pick. I, I don't know how good I would have been, but, you know, I at the very least would have, I would have given it my all, put it that way. Like I said, I, I think you give a, a first rounder a hundred games to fail. I could be wrong, uh, but that being said, guys, that's a story. There's absolutely no hard feelings because everything that just happened, I know that it's part of hockey, and I know in the end, I it's it's it lies on me. I, I didn't get a lot, but if there's one person in Montreal that I look at negatively from that time that I totally forgive now because we were both young is Michelle Therrien. He was a rookie coach as well, but the whole reason I just didn't want to be around him, you know, I, I had no problem. I don't. I think Reggie could have used me more, Reggie Hull, but. nothing against him. He's right. He didn't draft me. You know, he was there. There There's other teams that would have been interested. I don't hold it against him. Um, And I am Vigneault was just a really professional guy seemed really nice, but I didn't really know him that well, you know, I'd get called up and he had a, he had a system and players to put soldiers, you know, to carry out that system for him. And I was one of them. I listened to him. Seemed like a really smart guy. I had nothing against him. You know, it was Michelle Terian that I didn't like.
0: Now, uh, Treg, you had a question?
2: Yeah, I was going to say, do you think if you did less fighting that you would have more of a chance with your scoring? Because like you said, you kind of did anything you no. were asked. Do you think if maybe you toned down the fighting that you would have been a different path maybe?
1: Ironically, yes, for a couple of reasons. Um, and I say ironically because you definitely added to my package. I went eighth yeah. overall because that was part of the deal. I don't know if it was ever leaned towards the fighting, but it certainly helped in the era of the power forward in the era of mm-hmm. we have Vincent Damfus and Saku Koivu and, you know, <laughs> no offense against guys like Mick Fakoda, who were there that were there for a little bit. They were probably tougher, let's be honest. Like Mick Fikoda is a killer in the NHL. Mm-hmm. But I thought what I brought to the table is that I got as much spunk. I can fight, I don't think, quite as good as that, but nothing against Mick. He's an NHLer and I got no reason to say this. At the time, though, I thought, you know, you can throw me in on the power play. And when I played exhibition, I scored a couple goals in that I I wasn't like, I know it's exhibition, but I know in my head what I played. I know what I saw. I practiced out there. It was an extension of junior. It was all guys that I was, it was my peers. I never felt that I couldn't play, but A fighting was a big part of the game. Here's another story, point I was going to get to. If ever it came down to us, and I remember it happening. So if we went to play, say an exhibition game somewhere, or even in the regular season, if, if it was going to be me or Matt Higgins, say who's a buddy or me or Eric hood, great underrated player that I think they should have used more back then. There, there's an example, Eric hood. I didn't think I was any better than him. He came out of nowhere. He went in like the sixth or seventh round, but trade me. Cause you got him, you know, you want your French guy, you want your wheels, you he's just like I am, except he's, you know, doesn't fight. But anyway, we would get into these situations. I think it was easy to put those guys on the power play and me say on the penalty kill and me on the third line. If there, if you're going to put one of those guys on the first line, well, you know, Terry can grind it out right now. I have 50 goals in my draft year, which I, I don't need to name everybody in the organization that was dangler. But I'm thinking though I do those things, And though I might not look like a speedster, I definitely didn't look like Jonathan Duran out there when I was skating. Right. Like you you look at games, he he looks like he's flying. Sometimes it certainly wasn't like that, but wherever I went, I was getting the stats. If you put me on the power play, I know I'm a good passer. I always got put with the best player on the team or the number one center, which was Lankow, you know, as my career went on, you know, with BJ young, Mark Wolf, whatever it might be. So I, I knew I could do it. I, I, it, 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 you know, and I'm, I'm certainly not complaining and saying those guys couldn't grind on. The, but you know, I'm just saying, if you if you had um, Rick Nash and Shane Doan, you would probably go, you know what, Donor, we're going to put him on the third or fourth line. That's what I'm saying. Now, have they? Uh, you know, if, in that particular year, if Don had more points, I don't really think it. Could, so there, I looked at that as versatile though, because I didn't really care what line I played on. So I remember that. You know, not every fight was an invested decision, but sometimes it was like if we were at the end of the game and junior and pro or, you know, there's two minutes left and it's six to one. Of course, I often thought had my stats. It wasn't always for me. My stats all you send a message if it's in junior and you're playing Spokane. Hey, I can get a fight. Send them a message with, the, with two seconds left. Every scout here is going to go. This guy's full of piss and vinegar, right? It can't hurt me. And if I do well against a tough guy, that's the other thing. I didn't fight pushovers. Um, especially when I went to pro, you know, I, I always felt there's a second part of your question or this touches on your question. Did I do too much of it in a way? Yes. For that first reason, I said second reason, my reputation obviously became more and more as time went on. Like there's people now from Newfoundland that look back and say, like there's kids I coach and go, wow, I can't believe that you can play when I go out and play with them. I still play senior. Right um i led this it's a senior league but i led the league in scoring a couple of years ago right it's new new got a great senior league um so in way, you know I, I know it's senior but i can play like i can skate right? but a lot of the kids that i come to are like because what lasts on youtube is the fights and i've got like eight, 80 fights on there but i'm like no i always had stats and i can see how that i mean you you know there won't be a whole lot of goals just the way it works but well from the nhl there would be none but so anyway there's that but fighting I was there's a fine line because guys if you really want to know and I've never really until you just said that as I digress I was not only pretty good at it I was a good fighter to have because I'm a middleweight like I said so when I fought Taidomi. Right now, it looks back. I did it to impress my high school buddies and everything. No one in the Montreal dressing room. I did it three times. But the first time, I'm 18 years old. No one in Montreal dressing room thought I was going to do it. Now, when I did it, it was different than, say, a Mick Fakoda doing it. Nothing against this guy. I love Mick. He ended up playing with me in the minors. I use him as an example because he was a meat and potatoes guy. Now, he scored a bit in junior too. But I'm, I'm saying that Mick was like a real killer. Like For him to fight Taidomi would have made sense. Right. But an 18 year old coming in that just got drafted in the first round like two months ago, right after Domi does the belt and stuff like with Probert. Like it was look back at that situation, just like the 14 year old I told you earlier. That's another thing. I went in as a first round pick. It would be like now fighting Ryan Reeves, you know, like just some like young kid that just again, not, not not a young guy that's 20 or 21 an 18 year old that just got drafted. Like it was bizarre. So, but when I did it, we got so much of a boost that. So after I fought a lot of it was a microcosm of that situation. Like we would go into Philadelphia, if, if Terry's going to fight Frank by and I would do all right and give it to him. And I was all right. I was learning how to do it. So I knew that because I have now, if, if I went to fight Martin St. Louis and, slipped or something that would that would do the the adverse effect the, the, ex, the exact opposite yeah. for the team but i tended to fight belac and these guys and i was all right at it and i was getting respect from them and i started to be like accepted in that community like in the tough guy community. but that's that's here nor there but like so i knew and i knew when to do it i gotta be honest i knew when to do it i just wasn't out there doing it i wouldn't just accept you know if if Mark Major or Ryan Vandenberg was just asking me to fight, I'm not going to fight. We're winning four to two, right? But I knew when to do it. I knew if they hit the goalie, and I, w- I was an expert at it, right? I came out of the Western League in the 90s, like, yeah. So there was an appeal because, and it's like Aaron Asham when he made it. Like, this is all in relative terms, right? So Aaron, when he made it, look look at every year. Did Aaron? I'm not sure. I remember. Good story. Aaron's one of my best friends in the game wrote to forward to my first book when they played Montreal, when he was with Philly and they played him in 2009 or 10 around there in the playoffs, Aaron flew me up, gave me tickets to the game. And uh, I remember, I think Simone Gagne got injured. So Aaron was a fourth liner in the NHL um, could fight and often did. But if someone got hurt on the first line, Aaron wasn't going to embarrass you. You know, he'd go in there and be able to play. So that was the other thing. Like I just figured I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Like they know how good I am. And If it ends up swaying in the side of that, I fight a little bit more like Chris Neal, but I get a regular shift. I, ne- I never thought of myself that I was going to be, um, I never thought that I was going to end up getting one shift a game to fight that that was the end of I, I did not think that was going to happen, but I Chris Neal for sure. I could see that. Start, and that was starting to happen. Did I fight too much? Maybe, like, 34 in one year as a rookie is a little much, especially when underlying all this, you're right, is a 50-goal score in his draft year. And it's not like that was a one-off. I went to Red there, like I said, 33 and 30 out. gate, like So, you know, lead my team, there was enough evidence that I could score. But as time went on, and I did see, guys, it's the NHL. So I'm not saying I was going to be the next Cam Neely either. I don't really know. I just mean I felt comfortable out there. I definitely think I could have played on the fourth line, but if it came to it, if I was a little more Chris Neal than Rick Nash, it wouldn't bother me. And I could see that happening. My goal was to, you know, never have to drop my gloves unless I was pissed off. You know, when I left, it was because I was a scorer. But if, if, if I could be Austin Matthews, then I wanted to be Austin Matthews. But if I had to be Wayne Simmons, no problemo. Bring it on. Just put me on an NHL team, please. <laughs>
0: Now, uh, I got a question that a couple of the guys uh, that played senior with and against you mentioned to me in passing this week when I told them you were coming. Um, they mentioned something about you being a stand-up comic. They said you got a couple stories on that one.
1: I'm not really, although I've done it. Um, my, my first book came out, Tales of a First Round Nothing. I, I should mention because I know I'm an afraid. My new book, by the way, that a lot of this fighting stuff is actually explained in. It's called Fights, Film, and Folklore. Tales with Tier, Fights, Film, and Folklore. Uh, look me up on Instagram, Terry Ryan 2020. If you want a copy, shoot me a DM. I'll, I'll personalize one, send it out. Now, that being said, um, my first book is called Tales of a First-Round Nothing, and that that really took off. I had Bob McAllen um, had me on immediately. Uh, I was in. I was talking about senior hockey. I happened to be at the Allen Cup with the week it dropped, playing for newfoundland we got in the final against dundas jay mckee played uh matthew Barnaby was on the team um it was in dundas they beat us in double overtime but i was up there my book was coming out so i stayed for a week i went on bob McCowan. ken reed had me in the studio i i just went on this coincidental because i was there serendipitous i guess is the word um tour of this the kind of media blitz tour that I didn't even really plan. My book had just come out and Ron McLean was up there and said, Hey, do you want to drop into Hockey Night in Canada studios? I literally walked in with my book. They threw it on him and Don. I'm talking with him. Great. It was an absolutely great week. Um, then I come home though and I'm working and when I, I often like, I work in the movies, right? Like, but if you see me on screen, that's like a day or two. Normally I'm crew, right? So I do do background. I do stunts. I do acting, you know, Per day, you get paid as an actor. So they want to get your, you know, if you're in an episode, say it takes me, I was in an episode of Hunts and Rex recently, um, the show that we film here. So like the episode takes a week to film, but they're not going to have me in every day. They don't do it in order. They'll have my scenes one day, right? That's the way that works. They'll just do them all in a row. They shoot out of order. So like, I'm not, when I say that all the time, people think like I'm, I'm out there, like as this actor, that's like freelancing all over the world. No, we had a couple of studios here. I go to Toronto here and there. But, you know, if I'm in five things in a year and it looks like I'm busy, that could be five days. I'm normally working on the crew. I'm a set dresser, I'm a production assistant, any number of things. So uh, that particular day, I was, Jason Momoa, I was working with him, we were doing Frontier and I was a set dresser. So we had to move all these trees. We had to make this scene that required more, more trees. So rather than change location, we all went down and, chopped down these evergreen trees brought them in put them on set made it look like we were somewhere that we weren't and it, it, that can be fun so i had a fun day but then my phone rings i got tree sap all over me i'm dirty and all these um actual actors are, are around including Mabala. and it's jerry d and jerry d if those who don't know who i'm talking about just look it up um, yep Maybe he's, he's a comedian in Canada, pretty big ones get the show. Mr. D he's a host of family feud. Um, anyway, he, he, he called call me and anyway, we were talking. He said, I, I, I'm so busy. I don't read much, but I read this book. He said, I love it. I wonder if we can get writing something. He wanted to write a hockey show. As I recall, some kind of hockey show. And we, and we started to do it. So anyway, I said, you know, I'm, I, I'll come up to Toronto if you want to meet or whatever. So anyway, the long and short of it is that he convinced me to do stand-up, but at first when I was talking to him, I didn't realize that that was going to be the deal. I went up there thinking that we were going to write something, and I might try stand-up comedy. So I was in Toronto maybe three days, and he said, well, down at Yuck Yucks, on Richmond, I made a call, and I got in there tonight. It was open mic night, but you got to, you know, you, there's just not anybody can get there. You got to be on some sort of list, or like have done something, and I'd never did any, I, I, I'd never done anything. I did have some friends driving through. Zach O'Brien is my buddy from Newfoundland. He plays pro over in Europe now. He was playing for the Chicago Wolves that year, and they, they just wanted, or maybe Manchester, whatever it was, they just wanted the uh, American League Championship, and they were driving back. Teddy Purcell got rid of all this. My buddy, uh, eight or nine-year NHL vet, he was out in California, but he had some buddies within Tampa in the area, and they came to the show. Some friends I was with, Teran Sam with, and I just put a tweet out there, I might do this. So that um, Yuck Yucks ended up being packed And I didn't really know what to do I had no idea And Jerry just said In other words, I advertised it before I had an act And I didn't have an act And I sat at home thinking like, you know What's the deal with referees? And I I was going nowhere with it And I I just phoned Jerry I said, I don't know what you want me to do He said, you're going to try to write an act for tomorrow He said, Jesus, man You're not going to do that, trust me um, a little bit presumptuous on me to do that. And so I just, he said, just tell one of the stories out of the book. So to be honest, I got up there on stage and I said, I opened with, I, I didn't know what to say to people. I just said, look, I'm, I, uh, I never thought I'd ever be in this position, but I said, I'm the biggest sports disappointment in the history of Newfoundland and Labrador. I just going through a divorce and I'm not really a stand-up comedian. So please bear with me. And everybody kind of threw me a bone. And then I told a couple of stories and I had the crowd with me and, I couldn't believe it happened, but the thing is, I, after that, I never thought I'd do it again. I thought he was just kind of, it was a bucket list thing, and I thought he was helping me out. So the next day, I phoned, and I said, if you want to get right in something, Jerry, you know, where are we going to meet? And You know, you got to find me a job, and he says, well, you know, why don't you open for me tonight? He actually told me to meet him in Oshawa, and I didn't really know why, although I could snip something was up. He was playing the biggest venue he'd ever played. He was going on a Canadian tour. He'd never done it of stadiums. So he was like big, you know, kind of major junior type places. So he was starting in Oshawa. I forget what's called the GM center maybe. And uh, yeah. I just, that was, said, meet me out here. This was the next morning while I'm having breakfast. I got on the go train, went out, I said, I'm here. And opened the door. He said, I'm not there yet. I went in and I looked around guys, I'm telling you like five or 6,000 seats. And I couldn't believe it. I was looking at it going like, how did I find myself in this situation? I'm not a stand-up comedian. I've never really done it other than last night. And before I got up on stage, I had like five or six shooters. I, I just, my nerves were gone. And, and not only that, I smoked a bit of weed and I always forget what, so I, like I, I didn't even remember what I said. Like I, and he was like, you know, you, I mean, I remembered the story, but the delivery, everything, I have no idea. Jerry was just like, man, you should take a re- you know, record every and maybe you're a standup comedian, Jerry, I'm not, I don't know what to do. So I just got up. I'm telling you guys, it was more people there than not. I'm guessing about 40, 4,500 4, people. And it looked packed though. Cause they just moved the stage up a little bit. So it's not like there was empty seats at all. It was just like this big, uh, you know, big room. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I opened the same way and I gave people a choice, as I recall. I said, do you want to hear this story, this story, or this story? And then a few people had read my book, luckily, in the crowd. And that area is, is one. There's a lot of Newfoundlanders, Ajax, Pickering. Uh, around yeah. there, there's a lot of Newfoundlanders. So there's a lot that came, a lot I already knew who I was. And um, I was just say, hey, who wants to hear the Taidomi story? Or do you want to hear the hot sauce story? Uh, you know, all those. And, and so um, I knocked my teeth out of, of my head with a hammer. <laughs> Uh, on purpose so anyway they all pick one and then i told another one uh and then you know one half was going like go habs go and then it was go leafs go it was a great atmosphere i was so nervous but i ended up getting up there for about a half hour jerry's like what so it's like it was a weird thing the first time i actually was like advertised as a stand-up comedian i did this room that i'll never do again i talked to comedian since mark critch this hour is 22 minutes we did a charity thing recently and he said you know like i've never done a room like that i can't and he's one of the best I've ever met. I don't care, Canadian, American, anything. He's one of the funniest people. He just doesn't, you know, live in the States and do it because he doesn't want to. He is a, a fantastic comedian and guy, but I couldn't believe it. Then it started to hit home. He's like, think about it. Like, what comedians do you know? Look on, look on TV, look at these specials. Louis C.K. was big at the time. A few more, he's like, you know, they're playing in auditoriums or arts and culture center type things. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know, not a lot of comedians. Get to play that kind of a room. So it's a weird, weird situation because it makes me real nervous. That summer, Jerry's like he, he's like he wanted me to practice. So he's like, you know, you gotta get out and do the comedy bar and stuff. And you know, I did it. It was like fifty bucks, if that per time. It wasn't worth my for all the anxiety. And a lot is expected. And and you know, in these little rooms, I found the big rooms easier because if one person laughs, it's like contagious. So at least you hear something. Like that night. If a joke didn't work and only a thousand people of the 4,500 people laugh, I would still hear a murmur. If there's 11 people at yuck yucks, cause there's a storm out, which happened, right? And is anybody in the hockey crickets? Then I'm a one trick pony. It's going nowhere. What are you gonna care about how scary it was to fight Ty Dillon? You know, you never heard of him before, right? So that, and, and, and there were nights like that. So what ended up happening guys, is that Dale Howard Chuck, or rest in peace. What a great guy, passed away last August. Dale and I had done like alumni events together and stuff. And he knew a lot of people that I knew. I didn't play a long time, but I made some great connections. Ally, Freddie, Shane Corson, people like that are real close to me. And um, Darcy Tucker's, you know, and they were friends of his. So he said, you know, we don't have a whole lot of people that, that were one of us that played. I remember saying, I was never, ever one of you. He'd have these golf tournaments in Muskoka for these hall of fame guys. I was like, I was never one of you. But all good. But he'd have, like, guys like Ken Reed's a good friend. So, like, he, he just said, I'll pay you decent money, which he did, uh, to come out here and and to do do that act at, at you know, at, at my golf tournament. So it was great. He paid for everything. I went out there. I was treated like royalty for three days. I stayed with PJ, Schuch, who's a friend of mine from pro hockey. Um, and uh, I got to get up and speak to, like, Grant Fjord and, like, Peter Mahavlich. and It, it was it, – it was crazy. It was just nuts. We were in McSkoka and Ken Reed wrote the forward to my second book. Um, you know, Sportsnet, Ken. We, we went up there together. I remember we got a, cat or a car together up and I went on first, he went on second and then he uh, did the auction. And I had a few beers with Brian Scroodland and who I'd never met that I really looked up to. And uh, it just was was a perfect night. So from there... Dale set me up with a few more gigs of uh, like public speaking events and the NHL alumni stepped in and helped me out here and there and that became a thing so I did again this summer saying PEI you can't really travel much obviously so this was a bad year for that to start that ball to start rolling because it really started rolling like last year but but yeah so I do do stand up to answer your original question three hours ago um (laughs) But it's more I'm, – I'm doing the same act when I public speak. I'm only telling a story, right? So I'm, I'm giving the same performance in the back of a bus on the way to a senior hockey game um, as I am on stage at Yuck Yucks, as I am at Dale's event. So I guess word got out there. Uh, so I do, like, a lot of golf tournaments, uh, like kids. And I can talk about a lot of things. There's a lot of stories in there. Not all of them are, have punchlines, like, you know – a transvestite uh, or or knocking my teeth out of my head with a hammer or hot sauce those are you know those are stories that happen to a guy uh, along the way some are funny some aren't some are sad but I'd like to think that you know if there's one message that comes through in both books is that you know that the dressing room is a microcosm for real life the attributes that it takes to be successful inside that dressing room are the attributes that makes it to be, it's no, you know, makes, helps you be successful in real life. I don't know where Vincent Damfoos is right now. I assume he's a professional guy treated as a professional with a lot of respect because that's the way he was in the dressing room. I could name people that I assume that isn't the case. Most of them don't make it to the NHL though. Cause the NHL talking about Habs unfiltered there. How about that? Unfiltered. Yeah. You're usually, you know, Juniors where you find a lot of the unfiltered. By the time you get to the NHL, let alone the Montreal Canadiens, if they got wind that you're a bit that's why I couldn't believe Michelle Terrien was there so long, to be honest. But outside of that, I you know, you get up there and even the guys you don't hear from much, there's a reason they're there. They're gone if they're not. It's 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 a you know, I don't want to comment on the politics of it, but that kid on New York Rangers right now, Tony, is it D'Angelo? Uh, yeah. He, you know clearly a good hockey player but something you know he, he's not good with teammates and it's, it's not just the politics of it this guy can't be in a room with other people it seems so although i bet you he played all his games in junior or college or wherever he played right because it's a filtered thing so i just you know and i was lucky enough to get up to the top if, if i didn't get there for any amount of time again it's the eight games but i was there in the summers and you know i was called up a lot and I didn't play, you know, that year I was there just practicing, you know, I have a real, real good idea what goes on. And, you know, I was part of that process for three or four years. So I'm glad I got to see it because even guys like Turner Stevenson that you don't really, Oh yeah, he won a Stanley cup. Of course he did. I'm not putting Turner Stevenson down when I say that he, he was, wasn't much above average, not like he was going to break scoring records. But he was real good, reliable player um, who ended up with a Stanley Cup. He's a real good, reliable player on the best team in the league whose teammates liked him and who listened to the coach. And if you listen to the coach, that's why – that's another reason. I, it kills me because I was always a coach's player. I just didn't like Michelle Therrien. But I, I was so excited to learn from NHL coaches. I did for a bit. But, you know, that that professionalism and, and, and you know, that whole um, part of what makes makes you be successful as a hockey player and a professional and off the ice, and you know, you're, you know, you're, you're always working with charities. And the Habs, we had to pick a charity, but you know, again, you're a professional by them, But you know, we all they taught you to work with people that were less fortunate, that were disadvantaged. I carry that here. I do it all the time. You know, it's. Junior, it just seemed like lip service. But I got to be honest, when I got to the NHL and I even saw the Montreal Canadiens were doing that, I mean, look at P.K. Saban. Look, rubbed off on him, clearly. Like, you know, being in that dressing room. So anyway, I know I'm rambling on, but it, you know, that that would be the main thing I want people to take out of the book. There's funny stories along the way. The Canadians had, you know, it's all, it's all a metaphor. The Canadians had, remember that pregame brawl they had in warm-up? The refs weren't yeah. even on the air. There's always hiccups, right? But they're the most successful team ever. You know, the point of my book along the way getting there. If I, if I didn't tell all the downs and ups and everything that goes goes on in the game, I don't think I'd be being true to myself or the people that wanted to read the book. Not every single account of my lives, of my life, is in these books. Okay, but I wanted to highlight the important things that I thought I'd be a hockey fan and just someone that I wanted to balance the hockey one thing, but in, in Montreal, especially, there's so many things that are important off the ice. And the journey that you take is only partially on the ice. That's just what everybody sees. The other stuff isn't. What got you there is something differently. All these players that are these great stars that got there, they got there somehow and they all have backstories, right? For every uh, Pierre Turgeon I played with, there was a Jonas Hogland from Vastris, Sweden that never thought he would make it that drove an hour and a half to the rink every day. And it's all so interesting. And, you know, along that way, there's just so many people you meet and so many stories to be told that I feel extremely fortunate for that. And that's not that you asked, but that has been the theme of my books and my post Canadians life.
0: Well, everything has been very positive coming out of you uh, in your books, uh, online, all the stuff you do around the, the community. So it's not a surprise for me. Um, I mean, just, uh, just, uh, we, we ran into each other once. You don't remember it, but, uh, we, I was coming out of green sleeves and falling down. You even picked me up. So <laughs> when, even when, then, when was did, that? Oh, this was about two years ago, three years ago, two years ago. Did you tell me about the podcast? no, no i was unable to say much of anything
1: wow and so well i'm glad i I don't remember i probably would you know if if you were to fill in the gaps of that story but that's all i have a hard time filling in the gaps yeah me me foggy brain coming out of green sleeves would be uh, wouldn't be a surprise and and there's
2: there's a there's not a night on george street we can actually fill in the blanks for most stories i don't think where
1: are you guys from originally halifax
2: i'm from halifax yes okay I, I
1: grew up in Northern Ontario. What part? Sudbury. Oh, okay. That's, I was there last year. We shot uh, Letter Kenny there.
0: Yeah, that's a great, yeah, I watched that episode. That was hilarious. About a
1: year and a half ago. Okay, last year wouldn't make sense. Uh, yeah, a yeah. year and a half ago. And I got lots of friends from there, actually. my I have a guest coming on my podcast in a few weeks, Jeff circa Jeff S okay. S I R K K A. S-I-R-K-K-A. Yep. He's a cop now in Denver. Real old school. Jeff, like... Likes his beer full bodied and his favorite movies, one through five, all feature John Wayne. Uh, you know, his favorite music is Frank Sinatra. There's old school and there's Cirque. Cirque has a great story um, um, about he never got to the NHL, but he got to warm up. So he, uh, yeah, anyway, it's a really unique story. If you're from Sudbury, either listen to my next uh, two weeks from now, I'll have him on. Or have him on yourself. It's uh, very interesting.
0: <clears throat> now, before you, before you take off on us, I just wanted to ask, uh, do you feel like everything that you did kind of paved the way for that this new generation of Newfoundlanders that's finally being uh, appreciated and seen by the NHL community?
1: I think it started with John Slaney and that goal in 91, and when he went, John went ninth overall. But st- the ball didn't move. Four or five years went by. And you would think that that, that would, but I think that, you know, that would open the door, but I think people just thought it was a one-off. I won't say me. I would definitely say my father. When my father said, it's not Terry, take that all-star team. And we went with this <clears throat> team Newfoundland to Vancouver and we're, we're hanging in there. And all of us, I mean, there was nobody playing. The odd person might've been born or, you know, the year before there might've been someone in the CIS. I'm just telling you at the time, I remember when I went, there was no one playing major junior one guy, Gordy Walsh, but he was just moving on. John Drover played a few games. Like, I mean, you could count on one hand, the guys and people went to the OHL for the most part. Once every two or three years, we had one player go to the OHL. That's what it was like. Okay. When that team went and all of a sudden immediately eight or nine guys start playing on the mainland. Right. Um, on the mainland, just anywhere. So then, I, and another reason, I, it, and not only that tournament, guys, but I swear to God, when I went out to Cornell, I remember Mike Barnett, I didn't know this was going to happen. Mike Barnett was Wayne Gretzky's agent. And he came right to my door and he said, I just signed Radek Bunk. And he said, if I sign you, you'll be the youngest kid I've ever signed. But he said, I just watched a junior A game. And I watched a 14-year-old play and dominate it. And he goes, I want to sign you right now. Now, I swear to you, I might be off by a word or two. That happened. He came right to my door and he said those things in Cornell, B.C. And the first thing my dad said, you think Terry's good, but go a Harbor Grace, Newfoundland and check out Dan Cleary. And I didn't take slight to that. I was like, oh yeah, Mike, because I was proud of being from Newfoundland. I was like, mm-hmm. and then Harold Drukin was the next. But a couple days later, he's like, you got to look at this guy. And a lot of fans, hockey fans, you had to really dig. But Drew played 125 games, and he he uh, Vancouver one year if you're a Vancouver fan, he tied it up. They needed to get in the playoffs with a with a win. He tied it up with 10 seconds left in in, in the game, and then he fucking won, or he won it in overtime. How Drew can only played 125 games only, but um, big name in Vancouver hockey, and you know, so that ha- so for those reasons, and when that happened, people are looking at it going. Okay, so no one comes from Newfoundland. Yet Slaney goes ninth overall, Ryan goes eighth, Cleary goes 13th, and Druken goes 30th. It all within like so I mean what what happened in my mind, what blew the doors off it was people thought these were one-offs, but finally in the late 90s, people started to go, you know what? Like, what about Like, everywhere else has third liners. Like, there's got to be a middle ground with these guys. Hello, Ryan Klo, Luke Adam, Adam Party, Mike Ryder. Not that these guys, Mike Ryder, I would, you know, I'm pretty confident I could never go on and have a scoring career like that guy. I'm not saying I'm better than Mike Ryder. What I'm saying, minor hockey, I was a bigger name. I was younger. I was six foot in peewee. You know, so it's obvious. The players I mentioned with Drew that, you know, it was impossible to miss them, but who else is skating around? Like, these, these guys are coming from somewhere, you know? It was only, like, you would get a Newfoundlander, and he would be, like, your captain of the first line. But it was like, you know, there must be players there that can fill in other roles, and there were. And now, every year, you know, we in the Quebec League draft alone, we have multiple players per year, often 10, 12 of them, you know? And then there's guys, Alex Newhook chose to go, Junior A, the Boston College, ends up on the world junior team. This year, we had two players on the world junior team, Dawson Mercer and Alex Newhook. And whereas the difference would be back then, it would be those only two of those players getting a sniff. Well, you know, there was other players from here that had a chance. There's probably 30 playing major junior. There's all kinds in CIS. There's multiple players overseas. So hockey... You know, we, and we have a you know it's five hundred thousand people in Newfoundland. I don't know what the hockey registration is, but per capita, you know that that's part of a borough in Toronto, right? You know that that's that's not even Queen West, Toronto, right? Like you're talking in the whole province, and you're including Bays, you know, all kinds of places that don't have skates, don't have ice. So you know, the majority of our players come from a bigger area. Then you got the biggest, the St. John's like Michael Ryder comes from Bonavista again. And so does Adam Purdy, both NHLers, both 100% would have been uh, overlooked at the time. Even now they, they added in our A system here. It was obvious that West side corner book, then they had a central, they had a uh, East when it started, when it started, they had, they had one team. Then that happened. Well, then they added I think it's called Tripan, the Trinity Placentia area, and that's Michael Ryder. If that didn't happen, I'm telling you, he wouldn't have gone anywhere. It was, it, it, it's an evolution, mm-hmm. and we're, those guys now, obviously, I'm giving more credit to my dad here. You asked me a question, Ray. I no, don't want to...
0: no, I mean your dad yeah. did do a lot of work, and
1: as I, work. as I as I explained, it, it sounds cocky, but you know for a little for my dad played pro in, in the 70s there was five Newfoundlanders in the 80s I don't think there was one that played in the NHL so it's just that the, 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 the river was dry for a little bit but now because of those players I mean Michael Ryder and Stanley Cleary won a Stanley Cup what my dad did I think was get people noticed who are already playing the extension of that is that I think with Cleary and Ryder in particular and with Ryan Klo having a 600-game career and so on, and Luke Adam and Adam Herdy and, and, and so on and so on. I think what those guys did is get people actually involved in playing that weren't going to play. It's like Carl English claim here, came here He's one of the best basketball players that we didn't have basketball. Then they have this uh, National Basketball League here. You know, it's the minors. It's the minors of the minors. But we sell out in mile one because Carl, one, Carl English is playing. My daughter didn't pick up a basketball in her life. So she saw uh, St. John's edge game and Carl English is what he's from Newfoundland. That's what I think Ryder and Clary did. I think, you know, there were players, there was people that just weren't playing hockey that said, what you can, you can win a Stanley cup. You know, the parade here was massive. Was, yeah. I, I swear half the province was out. So I think they inspired people to play. I merely helped steer the boat in the right direction. Craig, did you have anything else?
2: Well, no, my computer crapped out on me. So I missed a lot, but.
1: Uh, <laughs> I got to take off too, but I will. Boys, if you want to do this again, anytime, you know, I, I really will. I, I seem hard to track down. It's more the timing since my book came out a few months ago. That's been chaos.
2: Oh, understandable. Yeah. Plus you got, uh, you're, you're involved a lot with the uh, TV shows and doing. I uh...
1: taught her now. I got uh, books. I got, uh, um, you know. I do some charity work here. I do manage a bar, uh, TJ's pub, uh, and then, you know, little things online. With the books, my books are in stores, right? But it, it's when I say this, it's no slate against the book company. They treat me great. But it's standard book deal, deal that most people have. You know, if the book sells at Chapters or somewhere, like, well, in a bookstore, it doesn't have to be Chapters. Why am I giving them free advertising? Uh, if my book sells in a bookstore, I tend to, it's 20 bucks, right? I get 50 cents. I wrote it all myself, but provided the pictures. It's just the cost of it. That's the way. So the way to make money at it, I literally buy it at Costco, buy my book at Costco, like 50 at a time. Then I come back here. And if people want um, on the mainland, whatever they want, it, I'll just charge uh, 10 extra books. Uh, so I buy it. I think it comes out to like 15 bucks. and Then I sell it for 25. So I make close to 10 bucks a book and people get, you know, a sign. And I got pictures made and everything. So I put in a picture, a hockey card. And the book, I figured $25 is a good value nowadays. And that way I at least make $10 a book. So that's why I'm, I'm often busy because I got to get these out on time and people order them. I've never really been in that position. Um, and, you know, I want to get it out to them. They're nice enough to buy it off me when they could just walk down to the store and buy it for cheaper. Then I'd like to get it out immediately. But, you know, that's a process because you get it, you know, you, you take their info and all that and and, you know they have the trust that I'm going to get it out there to them and you know there's almost a relationship with every book so you know I've sold you know when I don't want to say how many but the the sales have been going well not not in the least uh, due to great shows that like yourselves that you know it's one thing to speak to a crowd it's another thing to speak to a Montreal Canadiens crowd right I've noticed Habs fans all over the world just awesome, like a lot of them. I for years, guys, I felt like, you know, like unworthy as a Canadian, almost. You know, you know as you get older, that's silly. But you know, when I was younger, you kind of see where I was coming from. But the Habs are such a juggernaut in the sporting world that I could be like, and I have. I've, I've either had my book or, you know, walking to an airport in Prague, or you know, I'm often for ball hockey over in Europe, um, and you know, people just so welcoming. It's one thing. A, they think you're Canadian, which is much better than American. And B, uh, you know, places like that, they're really big into hockey. So, like, they might love Yarmer Yager personally, but, like, they love the Montreal Canadiens, and they know about Guy Lafleur, and Jean Beliveau, and so on, and so on. And it's wild. Like, and they're all over the world. Where I don't know that I'd quite be able to say that yet about, like, a Columbus Blue Jackets fan. No slight to them, but, or Nashville Predators. They're just too, early. like, there's people that their great grandfathers were into the Habs and they live in Germany. Like, you know, it's, it's nuts how far back and how many political spectrums, the Montreal Canadiens, um, the, the umbrella, you know, how far they overlap, it's, it transcends hockey. And for that reason as well, I'm so pumped to have played for them because it's a conversation piece wherever you go. Remember me and Jason Momoa were in a castle on a sheep firm, for lack of a better way to put it, in southern Scotland, like northern England, there's out in the middle of nowhere, but we were shooting frontier and we had to get these castles, and it's much easier to work in them when there's not in the middle of a community and there's people, you know, coming and going. Anyway, we were just out there, and, and this dude, he collected things from all over the world. Like it was, the castle was rare enough. I think it was dated 1200, but uh it was <laughs> um he had say the bed in there was a bed that uh, mick jagger owned with marianne faithful and then he had a rolling stones he had all original like albums he had uh, keith richards guitar and then it, it, there was a woolly mammoth uh, husks like really weird stuff all over the place all like extravagance and in your face but just any you know the castle was awesome to shoot in. But anyway, we go down and he's... I mean, at this point, I'm also playing background on the show. So I got a... My beard is like months old. Um, I'm wearing a British red coat because Momoa's is at any point, it's stormy and, we, and we're waiting for the snow. So I'm also his personal assistant. So like he's... We're waiting for the snow to come for this scene. And he's like, I'm assistant, but I got my stuff on just in case I got to do a scene. It's this weird... Place that I've never really been in the film world, only there. Anyway, this dude takes down, and does he not lift up this tickle trunk? And he's got a Maurice Richard stick. And he said, I don't know if you guys are American. I don't know if you've ever heard of hockey. I'm like, oh, whoa. So then I'm like, are you kidding me? We bring him on the phone. I showed him. He nearly, the guy nearly fell down. He I couldn't believe it. This was an old timer, a sheep farmer kind of guy. He had all kinds of money, but it was all in this castle. He what When I said extravagant, it was his assets. The guy was just a down-to-earth, everyday dude outside. He was sheep and just farmland for miles, right? Little cottages. Um, That was it. Anyway, I said, if I can get this conversation going. Anyway, Buddy had been to Montreal Forum. He'd seen all kinds of games when he was younger. And so those were his favorite players. And anyway, I was blown away. Point being... I don't know if anybody's doing that and hauling out a Cam Ward jersey from Carolina hurricanes or, or, you know, whatever it might be. It's it's great accomplishments, those guys and everything. I'm not putting it down to an NHL team with great plans. The Montreal Canadians symbol is almost like the bat symbol. Like it's just like, just put it up there and have fans worldwide. That guy didn't give a shit that I only played eight games. He couldn't believe I played a minute. Like it was just great. So we had, we had an awesome time and, that pretty much is just an example of how many that's happened to me thousands of times in my life. It'll, it'll happen this week.
0: That's amazing. We, uh, I want to thank you for coming on and we definitely want to have you back and, uh, I'll text you, uh, I'll text you a little bit later. I got some ideas that we could get some of these books out to some of our listeners as well. So I'd love to, I'd love to text back and forth on that and get that set up.
1: Hey, thanks guys. That's, um, I really appreciate it. I got to take off now too. Um, I can't believe over an hour has gone by. Okay. I appreciate that. My, I guess I should mention on Twitter, I'm Terry Ryan 20 and on uh, Instagram, yeah, Terry Ryan, 2020. It's tales with TR fights, film and folklore. Just shoot me a message if you want a personalized copy.
0: Right on. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Terry. We, we really do appreciate it. Thanks Terry.
1: Thank you guys for coming to George Street. If it happens again, let me know. This is all gonna be over soon. Doesn't doesn't feel like it, but science tells me it is. And facts, it'll be over soon. I hope to see you guys here again. If you ever need me, just say the word. We'll do. do.
2: Thanks, Terry. Thanks. Guys.
0: So that was Terry Ryan uh who joined us. Uh, I want to thank all our listeners uh for sticking by and listening to Tales with Terry. That was amazing. I loved it. I absolutely loved it.
2: Just you could just listen to him talk. Hams unfiltered, just Terry Ryan. <laughs>
0: oh, he, he's unbelievable. Yeah. He is a true character, and um, I honestly, I honestly feel like he is he's essentially what Newfoundland is bottled up into a oh. person.
2: Oh, it's it's perfect. Down to earth it's one yeah. of the best interviews we had, and I don't oh, think yeah. we really did much interviewing. It was just.
0: We asked him like three, four questions. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and he just, ran with
0: it. Yeah. So that was right. amazing. So, um, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I, we really do appreciate you, uh, you, uh, you sticking by us and we hope to bring you more great content like this. So, uh, keep, uh, keep clicking like, keep listening. And remember if you are talking about it, so are we.